God is a God of grace. Did you know that? Grace doesn't mean you earn it. It's given to us as a gift. That's grace. Um, I want us to turn together to John chapter 5. There's a story here that I, I want to read. I want us to work our way through it, like a couple verses at a time, verse by verse is the way I prefer to uh, preach and read the Bible. I'm kind of more expository than topical. But my son once told me that, that I'm the best he's ever heard at someone who does topical sermons expositorily. <laughs> Put them together. Okay, you may not know what that means, but that puts a smile on my face. Uh, okay, John chapter 5. We're in this series called the Book of Signs, where um, we're looking at seven different signs in the first half of the Gospel of John. That's why it's sometimes called the Book of John, uh, or the Book of Signs. There's seven signs, and we're looking at each of these signs, and each of these signs reveals to us something about Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at sign number three, three of the seven, that talks about uh, Jesus being our healer. Everybody say the word healer. 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 We've all uh, had to go to a doctor sometime along the line, whether it was some kind of a, uh, a shot preventative thing or if it was because we hurt ourselves somewhere along the way, got sick. Uh, and, and we were kind of relying on that doctor to have a little bit of wisdom inside, a pill, something that's going to help us in the, the area of healing. But Jesus is our healer, and we're not just talking about our bodies. We're talking about our whole lives. He heals what is broken. And so let's read uh, the first part of the story together. John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Sometime later... Jesus went to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. You may recognize that name Bethesda. We'll get to that in a minute, but it means mercy. That's what the word Bethesda means. A um, couple things I want to, want to point out. I, let me, before I get into it, let me tell you this, this story uh, that I experienced years ago. I led a short-term missions trip to the Dominican Republic, and uh, one of the things, they, one of the places they took us to was a, a mental hospital in, uh, I think it was Santiago. We might have gone to another town. I can't remember. Some of you maybe were on that trip with me. I, I don't remember who was with me at that, on that trip. But we went to this mental hospital, which was a building in downtown. And it was where they, they put people exactly what you, you recognize that term to be. These are people that had mental issues. And some of them were older folks that had dementia, Alzheimer's, that kind of thing. They did not take us to the lockdown unit where people, you know, could hurt you. Uh, but basically, we just went to visit these folks. We did, couldn't speak the language, so we had to do everything through a translator. And afterwards, I've thought on several times, I wonder how much good we actually did uh, going in there as gringos and communicate, trying to communicate our best. But, you know, the, uh, the interesting thing was, 
Eileen and Alan tried to prepare us before we went, but there's no way you can prepare somebody for that. She tried to tell us this is a, a dark place. It's a depressing place. I thought, well, we're, we're down here. Everybody's kind of in a dark place here in, where we're going in the poverty areas. We're, we're going to go in. We're going to encourage people. And I did not realize how uh, oppressing that place was. And when we all left, there was like a somberness about us. We had been to a place of hopelessness. You know, you visit somebody in the hospital, there's doctors and nurses working on them to get them better. But what do you do with someone who's lost their mind and can't function in society? How do you help someone like that? Well, we're, this, this story we're reading is a place like that, that Jesus experienced. Now, it's, it says uh, afterwards, or I don't remember how it started. I just read after this which kind of gives me the impression that there is an order to Jesus' life. After he did this, he did that. John is recounting the sequence of events that happened in Jesus' life, and now this story, after this, then this happens. It's, it's like God's Spirit was working in the life of Christ step by step by step. And I think he does the same thing with you and I. Our lives have been guided by him. Sometimes we didn't like those steps. But we weren't, wouldn't be ready for the next step had we not taken this step. And the next step we take prepares us for the next step, which we don't have a clue what it is. But God kind of guides us step by step. So it says they went up to Jerusalem. Anytime it talks about someone going to Jerusalem, it always talks about up. They always went up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. It didn't make any difference if you're going north, south, east, or west. You always went up to Jerusalem and down from it because they saw Jerusalem not only as the capital, the, the most important city in the country, they also saw Jerusalem as the, the meeting place with God. This is the high point in Jewish society was to go to Jerusalem which they had to do a couple times a year for, for these big festivals that they had. This is one of those Jewish festivals. So Jesus was in Jerusalem. Some people say it was one of the Passovers, but most probably not because that would mean Jesus' ministry was four years long on the earth and not three because there's three other events where he went to different Passovers. So we don't think it's Passover. Most probably this was the Feast of Pentecost which was another holy day. In, Judah, in Judaism, celebration was a big thing. You came together and you had a feast. You had a party. Everybody came, big family reunion three times a year, three different events they had to come to every year. And Jesus, you know, Jesus, he was, he was uh, very Jewish. He went to every one of those events because he did what God told him to do. And if God said, let's go, let's go. So, probably the Feast of Pentecost, and you remember what Pentecost represents, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, he's there in Jerusalem, and I want us to see all through this story, we're going to see uh, types and shadows. We're going to see God communicating to us if we'll be careful and study the Word, and I want to help us do that today. So, not only was this at Jerusalem, it was by the Sheep Gate. 
the sheep gate. That's one particular entrance. And Jerusalem had this big, heavy, in Christ's day, had this big wall around it, and there were several entrances called gates. And this, this event that we're about to read happens by the sheep gate, that particular gate. Now, you can probably figure out from the name what happened at that gate. That's where they brought the animals in to sacrifice. They brought them through the sheep gate, and then they, they took them down the streets of the city from the sheep gate down to the temple where they would be sacrificed. So here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, in through the sheep gate. <clears throat> I think God's trying to communicate a bigger picture here than just some event that happened. Now, what do we know about the sheep gate? because that's, I think it's a significant part of the story. We'd have to go back to Nehemiah in the Old Testament, the prophet Nehemiah, who felt impressed of God to go to the city of Jerusalem, which was now destroyed, laying in ruin, and rebuild everything. Get your defenses back up. Because the enemy had just wiped out the Israelites and the people that left behind from the Babylonian uh, uh, attack were mostly the people that didn't have education. They didn't have abilities. They were the least of society. They left them behind. They took everybody of substance back to Babylon as prisoner. Well, a couple generations now after that captivity, Nehemiah feels impressed to go back and rebuild the wall. And to do that, he's got to organize the people. He's got to rally the people. So he gives them the vision, gives them the dream. And as they were rebuilding the wall, he gives us an account of who did what. And if you go back to Nehemiah and read through that account, it starts at the sheep gate. And he tells what family rebuilt the sheep gate and hung, hung those, uh, those big doors on those big walls. And then he tells what family built the next section of the wall, and then what family built the next section of the wall, and then what family built the next gate, and he goes all the way around the city of Jerusalem and comes back to the Sheep Gate, the place that's mentioned twice. So it represents to us full circle. It represents a completion. And Jesus comes into through the Sheep Gate into the city of Jerusalem. And just inside the Sheep Gate, there's a pool there called the Pool of Bethesda, <clears throat> which means mercy. People are gathering around the pool, believing in the mercy of God, hoping for the mercy of God. Have you ever gathered around a pool just waiting for God to show up? one of the reasons I come to church. I want to be around a pool of people like me waiting for God to show up. I need God to speak to me. I need God to do something in my life. And around that pool are five covered colonnades or porticos, depending on what version, porches. Uh, they, they're uh, these areas that were covered that had like, like a roof over them, five of them, where you could get some shade. And so there's a, there's a lot of people hanging around under those porches waiting for God to show up. The word I want you to write there in the first part of our study is compassion. Jesus came to the pool of mercy through the sheep gate. 
and he walks in and he sees the pool. That's the compassion. The next thing I want us to see is the condition, which is found in verses 3 and 4. So let's read the text together. And if you have the NIV, it omits verse 4, but my Bible puts it down here. It, it real nicely updates uh, to the New International Version, the text, and I want to read that as if it should be in the Bible. Verse 3, here at the pool of Bethesda, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. <clears throat> From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Picture this in your mind. Jesus steps through the sheep gate and he's looking down at the pool. And all around the pool there are five porches and the number five represents grace. And these are people who need grace. They need some mercy. And they're gathered around there waiting for something to happen, waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to do something. This is what I want us to see is the condition, the condition of Israel at the time, because I believe what Jesus saw is representative of the nation, uh, of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. And it's representative of people who have not resolved their sin problem, and they're still carrying around the weight, the burden of sin in their life. It says a great number of disabled people. Disabled means they're not able. Something had happened to them. I don't know if it was, it might have been a disease for some people. It might have been an accident for other people. It might have just been a series of incidents for somebody else. But can you think of any more of a hope, hopeless situation than what we see around the pool of mercy than what we have right, right here? What a, what a sad story. It's a picture of Israel waiting for the waters to be stirred, and there is no stirring. Nothing's happening. Israel is desperate for relief, but nothing to resolve it until Jesus steps through the sheep gate. Now, it gives us a little bit of description about the disabled people. Uh, it says they were blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, how is a blind man going to know when the angel comes and stirs the water. He's blind. He can't see it. He's hopeless. And how can a lame man who can't walk get from his place in the shade into the water if he's lame and he can't walk? And how can a paralyzed person that can't do anything for themselves get in the water when it is moved? This is a desperate situation. It's a hopeless picture. It's a picture of Israel when Jesus came onto the scene. And it's a picture of the lost world outside of these church walls who are confused and mixed up and have lost their hope. 
Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19 explains the condition like this. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Have you ever been at a place, maybe your home, at night, and the power goes out, and there's not a night light, not a, a, not a clock with a glowing light, any place. It's pitch black in there. And you know what it's like to kind of move through your own home where you're familiar to get to the flashlight, and you can't see things? It's deep darkness, and you can't see what you're stumbling over. That's what sin's like. You can't see what you're stumbling over. You can't see the thing that holds you back. You can't see your own sin. That's what's being described here. And so what do these hopeless people do? They wait. Now typically if you wait for something, you have some hope. You wouldn't wait for something if you didn't have a hope something was going to happen. I mean, waiting is a part of our society. We even, we even name places the waiting room. You go in and you wait. What are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting for somebody to call us in. We're waiting for the next step here, this appointment. We're waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the angel to come and stir the water. That's what they're waiting for. Not a pretty picture. But I want us to go on to the next three verses as the story unfolds. And here, here, here's an example of going from bad to worse. As he describes the condition. We're going to look at verses 5, 6, and 7. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So Jesus loves to ask questions to probe and to get us to reveal something a little bit deeper. And this is what he did here. So I, I call this the desolation. We're going from a bad condition to desolation. Here's a man who had been there, who had been in this condition for 38 years. That's a long time. I'd just like to ask uh, for a point of reference, is there anybody here in this room that is 38 years old? Raise your hand if you're 38. Okay, Becky, stand up. <laughs> That's why she raised her hand kind of slow. <laughs> oh, that's right, you're a woman. We now know. <laughs> <laughs> Becky is 38 years old. It was 38 years ago she was a baby. She's not a baby anymore. 38 years, I, I, I hate to say this in front of Becky, it's a long time. <laughs> Thank you, Becky. You can sit down, let your red cheeks get a little bit whiter. Sorry for embarrassing you. 
38 years. But I want, I want us to see that these, these Bible stories are prophetic, and we need to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So is, does the number 38 show up anywhere else so that we can see what God's trying to say to us? It does. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, we read this. 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea, and by the way, that's where the law was given, until we crossed the Zered Valley. That's when they entered into the promised land. By then, the entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. 38 years represents from the time God gave the Israelites the law until the time they finally reached the promised land. It represents living, wandering in the wilderness with God's commandment on you. That's a heavy weight. It represents this man for 38 years been waiting for the waters to be stirred so he can be healed and there's always something else comes up that keeps it from happening. 38 years is a long time. It also 38 years then represents the whole nation of Israel being under the law and unable to find deliverance. And it represents every sinner who remains in bondage until they open their heart to Jesus Christ and find his forgiveness. Now it says he was an invalid. There's, there's an, another way to pronounce that word. Invalid. So to say someone's life was invalid, what would we be saying about them? You don't have any purpose. You're, you're not a real person. You're just taking up space. You're a waste of human life. And that has to be something that he feels there around the pool. But you know, birds of a feather flock together, so he goes where other people are just like him. So all around the pool is this, is this mass of misery, all waiting for the waters to be stirred. And the angel never comes. But Jesus has just stepped through the sheep gate. Good things are about to happen. It says, Jesus saw him lying there. Now, wait a minute. It says there's a great multitude around there. And Jesus sees just one? Yeah. That's the picture in the story we're supposed to get. He looks at the mass, and he sees just one. And he zeroes in on this guy, who's been there for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there. That's grace. The good news is Jesus sees every one of us sitting here. He knows of our frustration. He knows of our failure. He knows of our disappointment. He knows our situation. And he looks there and he sees us. There is nothing in the text anywhere to give any idea of why Jesus would single him out. That's grace. He singled him out. There's absolutely no reason I can clarify in my mind why God would single me out years ago when I was lost in my ways and mixed up and confused and I was, I was as bound up as this man was. 
But Jesus singled me out. I don't know why. I guess it's grace. And his grace is openly flowing. And all we have to do is recognize he singled us out. Respond to it. God is so good. By the way, did, did you know that the pool of Bethesda has been excavated out in Jerusalem? We, we have a picture of that. This is what it looks like today. If you went on a tour, they would, uh, there, you see the walkway in the upper right-hand corner? That's ground level. Picture was taken over from over here on another part of that catwalk. You can see you got to go down 20, 30 feet to where Jesus actually walked. I've been to Israel, and, and I know they, would, they, they, they took me to places, and they said, well, this is where this happened, and this is where that happened. No, not unless you go down about 25, 30 feet are you going to find where Jesus actually was. Notice where the three columns are over here to the right. That's where they believe the sheep gate was. The steps are coming through the sheep gate, coming down, in the, and then from here and on over is the pool of Bethesda where people were waiting. And uh, we don't have time to go through a bunch of pictures, but there's more pictures you can see of that pool. So picture Jesus coming through the sheep gate and standing at the top of those steps and looking out over this pool of misery. All these people have no hope, but they're waiting for the angel to come and stir the waters. And it says, when Jesus learned he had been there a long time, it's like it wasn't revealed to him. He learned it. How did he learn it? I think he probably asked questions. Loves to ask questions. He doesn't always get the right answers, but he always asks questions. So he comes to this man who's been miserable like this for 38 years. He's an invalid person. And, and Jesus comes up to him and he says, do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? He's sitting here wasting his life away, waiting for the angel to stir the water so he can get in, so he can get well. It should be an obvious answer. But Jesus wants to know what's he going to say. Because his response to the question will reveal where, he's, where his faith is, where his heart is, what he's believing in. And he said, when Jesus asked, do you want to get well? He said, no one will help me. No one will help me. When the angel comes and stirs the water, I need some help, and no one will help me. I'm hopeless. Jesus, Jesus didn't want that answer. He was looking for some kind of faith answer. And the guy's response comes back, zero faith. I don't have any confidence in anything but the angel coming. And, and if the angel comes, everybody will abandon me. I feel all abandoned. So he feels abandoned. That could be one of the conditions that holds us in desolation and we can't move on because no one will help me. I'm all by myself. And then he says, when it happens, there's always someone who beats me to it. There's always someone a little quicker than me, a little faster than me, a little more blessed than me. I can't get any better because 
I'm comparing myself to everybody else, and I can't measure up to everybody else. I hope you're not one of the people sitting around like this poor guy, 38 years, blaming somebody else for getting ahead of us, blaming somebody else for abandoning us. And so we go through life with this victim mentality, thinking that we're victims. Because as long as our mind is set on the fact, somebody's always better than me, quicker than me, nobody will help me, poor me, you'll never get better. The pool of mercy is designed for, for Jesus to step into our life and change the way we think. So his faith, once Jesus asked the question, his faith was in somebody else or, or this, the angel coming to stir the water. His faith wasn't in the Messiah that had been promised to deliver them. He didn't have any faith. Which takes us to the next part of the story because I want to get out of this dark part. I want to get into some good news. And we find that in verses 8 and 9 of the story. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, which is another story, the rest of the story, and we won't get into the Sabbath thing and all the controversy, controversy that that brought about. But I want us to look at the motivation that Jesus gave this man who was laying there with his faith in something, whether it was an angel really did come periodically or whether it was a legend, we don't know. But that's where his faith was, that something was going to happen and it wasn't going to happen. But Jesus came along with a better plan, with a better way. So he gives him three, three messages. Get up. That's the first part. You got to get up. I like the way the King James translates it better. It says, rise. Rise. That's what Jesus had to do. He had to rise. And because he rose, he can now give us the instruction, rise. Get up. And then he says, take up your mat. That mat has been carrying you for a long time. Now it's time for you to carry the mat. Rise, take up your mat, and walk. That's the one thing he couldn't do. But it says, at once. That means immediately. God wants to deliver you. If you stop and think about it, you'll argue yourself right out of the miracle. He wants to deliver us. Don't think about it. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. Now, I, I can just picture this. This guy starts to move. I know people who would say, well, I can't. And when they say, I can't, they stay right there. But Jesus spoke first to his mind. He gave him a vision. He gave him a dream. He gave him a hope. Rise up, take up your mat, and walk. He never thought of himself doing that. Always saw himself as the hopeless victim. 
But now Jesus gave him a dream. Sometimes we need to practice that. We need to think through, what would it look like if I had a really good marriage? What would that look like? What would it look like if I had a successful business? What would that business kind of look like? We have to give ourselves a dream, a vision. And once you see what can be, you can begin to work toward it. So Jesus gave him that dream. He couldn't get into the pool, but he walked right up those stairs and out of there. I see victory in that. I got one more of these, one more part of the story. I don't want to leave this behind. And that's what I call the transformation. The transformation. Because just because you receive a healing in your body does not mean you've been transformed. It does not mean your life has changed. Jesus came to not just change your body. He came to change our minds. He came to change our soul. He came to change our lives. Everything about us. In verse 14. It says later. Jesus found him at the temple. And said to him. See you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Whoa, something worse than 38 years of hopelessness, wallowing around in misery, something worse than that? What could be worse than that? Jesus gives him a clear threat. This is a threat. Straighten your life up or the, the next result will be worse than this one. Church, we need to straighten our lives up. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. We need to straighten our lives up. Or a worse thing can happen. I remember how empty and hollow my life was before I came to Christ when I was still in my sin. I was like this guy in her story. I don't ever want to go back to that, let alone worse than that. So I have some responsibility. Now notice Jesus didn't come to the lame man and say, stop sinning, or a worse thing than this would happen. He went to him and showed him grace. And then he gave him the truth. If you take truth to people who are still lost in their sin, they won't see it. They don't get it. They'll get mad at you for trying to cram Jesus down their throat. But if you show them grace... And they receive that grace. Now they can see it. And then you give them the truth. Amen. And neither can we all be all about grace and not give people the truth. You know, straighten your life up. It's going to be worse than it was before. Jesus looked him up to tell him that. I believe he looks us up to tell us that. If I know the leading of the Holy Spirit... That's probably why we're here talking about this. Because he's telling you and he's telling me, time to straighten the life up. Or a worse thing will happen. So what do we learn from the story? That Jesus is our healer. He wants to step into our brokenness. And you know, being sick doesn't just mean blind, lame, and paralyzed. It could be having this victim 
mentality that goes way back to when somebody really did you wrong and really hurt you. And I'm sorry that happened to you, but it's time to rise, take up your mat, and walk. It's time for newness. We can't stay where we were. We've got to move. And that's what this story is about. He wants to bring healing to our lives. So, that said, you know I got to come to this, to this uh, path of wrapping up our message. If you're here today and you can look at your life and you can say, I can see where I'm broken and I can see where I'm kind of sitting around that pool and I see that I'm waiting for something unrealistic to happen that's probably not and I need God's healing in my life. If that's you, would you stand? We want to pray for people that need healing in their life. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's a memory. If you want God to heal you, stand right where you are. Thank you. Anyone else want to join them? Because Jesus is coming through the sheep gate. And he's got his eyes on some of us. And he wants to heal. Okay, the rest of us kind of look around, see who's standing. And would you go and lay hands on somebody? Make sure every one of these people standing has somebody laying hands on them. We're going to pray for healing here in just a minute. Hallelujah. Somebody's got to lay hands on Carolyn back there. We're, we're, she's in the back row and we're missing her. Heavenly Father, we're praying right now. Lord, you are a good God. You are a merciful God. And Father, you are our healer. That's the thing we learn about you through this sign. And we pray right now in the name of the Lord that you will move mightily, that you bring restoration, that Satan would have to let go of what's happening in them. Uh, Father, whether it's a physical healing, an emotional, psychological healing, uh, whether it's a, a, a healing from something dysfunctional in their life, like business or something, I pray in the name of the Lord that you're going to bring healing, you're going to bring insight, that Satan's going to have to flee, that that which is broken is going to be healed, fused together again, that that which uh, has taken away hope is going to restore hope again. God, I pray that you're going to restore that. Renew your people. Father, we're your people desperately crying out to you, and we ask for your intervention. We ask for the Lamb of God who paid the price for us on the cross to redeem us. Save us, Lord. Tell us to rise up. Tell us to carry our mat. Tell us to walk again. Because all you have to do is speak it, and it's done. So, Father, do this miracle. Deliver us. Heal. In Jesus' name, we pray it in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 God is the healer. He's working. It's an ongoing process that he's working renewal in our lives. We have to believe that. Amen? Amen. We've got some prayer partners up here to the front. If you need a prayer partnership, they want to agree with you.
uh, and we'll see God do great mighty things. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go with God. He loves you.